And now, weighing in out of the blue corner, Josh the Pong Thompson. 100%. And on the other mic, he weighs in from the red corner, Big John Oh, that's right. It is the Weighing In Podcast, and my man Josh Thompson and I have so much to talk about. We're going to be talking about the big-time UFC 285 coming up with the first appearance of John Jones as a heavyweight. First appearance in almost three years for John Jones. Going against Cyril Gaon, that's going to be an epic fight. Could be a whole game-changer in the way people look at things, but... We're going to talk about that, and we are going to have a special guest coming on a little bit later to talk to us about eh, certain things that are important in MMA. So, my man Josh, what are you doing, baby? That's a beautiful shirt you're wearing. Because, and still, that's right, babe. Go ahead, flex. Flex. Hashtag and still, baby. Hashtag flex. Would you please? I tried. That's it. That's all you get. That's all you get from me, buddy. That's it. Yeah, I mean, I'm pumped, and we had uh, we're gonna have a great conversation and uh, with someone a special guest later on, and uh, I'm like pumped for that. And then on top of all of this, John, this is the big card coming up. This is oh, the chance. Huge. This is the chance for John Jones to, I guess, kind of solidify, solidify himself solidify. as potentially the greatest fighter of all time. That's right. I, now I know that he's had things in the past. People keep talking. I have a question though. What exactly did the commission change? What exactly did USADA change that said that whatever it is that he had in his system just wasn't enough and that those kind of things now, like that that he had in his system that would not be considered uh, cheating now? Well, no, he had what was called, they were trying to measure it out as picograms, mm-hmm. but he had picograms of certain metabolites that are known to be metabolites you get from specific steroids Mm -hmm. that he had in his system and at the time the number of units that were being presented in his urine sample or blood sample at the time was enough to say that you know what you are violating what USADA was those numbers have now been changed based upon USADA other people wanting those things changed as far as the numbers and now John is sitting there saying, I have been vindicated that I did not take anything. And as much as I really don't care about the whole thing now, no, he wasn't vindicated. No. You know, he got caught. Now it's a different, you know, it's like saying Nick Diaz got caught with marijuana in Nevada when he fought Anderson Silva. Anderson Silva got caught with some type of blue liquid that he got from Thailand. <laughs> Or whatever it ended up being, and then uh, Nick Diaz, they almost they almost tried to give him a lifetime suspension for marijuana. Geez. Well, now the levels are different as far as what they allow in the state of Nevada. So the levels that he was at, he might not even have been, you know, put in a place where he could have been suspended. But at the time, with the nanograms that they had. He got caught for you know having marijuana in his you know a marijuana me- metabolite in his system. You know it doesn't mean he didn't do it. it. Just means that now the amount that he had maybe it wouldn't be illegal. Yeah, but I look at marijuana as not performance enhancing. I don't think so either. I absolutely don't. I think it's ridiculous. Yeah. Um. I 
I don't even want to get on more to that, but <clears throat> I just wanted the I I didn't know what the rule change was. I didn't know I I didn't read up on it, and I just heard all this stuff that people were talking, <clears throat> and I saw John had written something saying that he was basically vindicated that no, and sorry, I, if you want to if you want to you know you want to believe it, go ahead, but no, it doesn't vindicate him. He took it, okay. Yeah, at some point in time, he had taken some sort of performance yes. enhancing drug, and yep. that's yeah. Um. But all of those things aside, they, we have never, I don't think anyone's ever questioned his talent. Oh, come on. Anyone that questions his talent or his fight IQ or the way he could absolutely change a fight at any time, you know, the guy is, he's special. He is special. You know, there's never been anyone when, and you, it's because it's a combination, in my opinion. It's a combination, Josh, because you know a lot of guys. I know a lot of guys. They're just God-given talent. You know, God made them a certain way. They had mm-hmm. speed. They had the ability to have power. They had all these things going for them, but they always lacked somewhere. You know, mentality-wise, they just weren't mentally strong or whatever it was. Work, they just ethic, lack work ethic. Normally. Work ethic. Look, let's be honest. You know, as far as fight IQ... Tell me he doesn't have a good fight IQ. Brilliant. 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 Tell me he doesn't have physical attributes that nobody else had at 205. And, you know, it might be a little bit different now at heavyweight, but an 84-inch reach. Stefan Struve was seven foot tall and had an 81-inch reach. Mm. Okay? I mean, there's just certain things about him. He had just physical attributes that you look and you go, wow. You know, incredibly, he's very strong, even though, you know, a lot of people don't give him credit for it. Physically, he's very strong. You know, he's got long levers that makes it to where he can do things. He's a good wrestler. He's got good stand-up. He's slick with his stand-up at times. May not have the biggest power. We're going to see if it translates to heavyweight. Because, you know, Dan Cormier didn't have the greatest power as a light heavyweight, but he had really good power as a heavyweight. It just translated better for him. We're going to see if that happens for John. There's no doubt, you know, what he's done in MMA is incredible. I mean, I want to say there's, what is it they said? I I saw a number. It was either his last 12 years. The only thing he's fought is championship fights. Yeah. It's fucking amazing. Do we not give Chris Cyborg the same amount of credit? I mean, she for years was undefeated or not undefeated, but like she for years, all she did was fight championship fights. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and uh, she is she also, not considered one of the best female fighters of no, all she time? Is. No, she absolutely okay. is. I mean, I'm just simply saying like they both got caught up in. <laughs> in they stuff. both got caught. Yeah, they both got caught. Both made a mistake. Um, Both extremely talented. I think one nope. one of the female divisions, one of the most dominant female fighters, if not the most dominant ever, and then John Jones being probably the most dominant in the male division. I mean, I look at I, I'm not I'm not trying to compare the two in terms of longevity and that, but I look at Habib being the most dominant fighter in the cage. John being, I don't even know how to put it. Like he's definitely he wasn't the most dominant. But he had won not throughout all of his fights. No, no, not throughout all of his fights. And we found that mainly at the end of his career. Well, I, and a lot of it, you take a look and, you know, how many times do we talk about it, Josh? As a champion, 
it's tough to get up every time because you've got that target on your back. It's hard for you to take that target and find something that actually gets you excited Mm -hmm. because your promotion is always going in. Okay. This is the next one. Here's your next one. Here's your next one. And it doesn't mean that you're excited to fight that person. There could be, you know, someone out there that you go, yeah, that really excites me and you get up for it. But most of them you're like, yeah, I could care less really. I don't think, you know, I don't think he's good as me. And so as soon as you start saying, he's, he doesn't present a lot of problems for me. Well, where's your motivation come from? So that makes it difficult. And again, this, that goes back to what I just said, 12 years, 12 years of championship fights. That's a long time. Fuck. Yes. You know, and you look at the guys that he has had to fight along the way. I mean, some of them being legends, you know, Shogun, Shogun, Hua, Machida, um, you know, you got the list of fighters that are just see, and I think though I think all those guys when you're talking, he obviously won the title from Shogun, mm-hmm. but the Leota Machida fight, I think that got him excited. Yeah. I think that was one that he, you know what, he he trained his ass for off for, and he was excited about fighting someone like Leota Machida. Well, he lost that first round against him. Yeah, Leota has did what Leota does and flustered the yeah. shit out of him. Finally, John yeah. grabbed him and said, "Come here, son." Yeah. <laughs> That's exactly what it was. Press him to the fence and said, give me that. Hit him with a shot, and Leota went, "Uh uh-oh. That hurt, and then it was downhill from there. But, I mean, there's no matter what anyone says, you know, it it comes up. He's got a record of 26-1. and He didn't lose that fight. You know, that that was done poorly as far as the regulatory, you know, body did not handle that from the official to the commission they didn't handle that right because matt hamill who he has that loss against yes if you want to say that john fouled him okay but that fight stopped based upon a separated shoulder by matt hamill it wasn't because he was hurt by the elbow the illegal elbow that was called that had nothing to do with why matt hamill couldn't go on in the fight he had a separated shoulder from John Jones throwing him on his goddamn ass, you know, with a takedown, and he separated his shoulder from it, and that's why the fight could not So that was a legally done technique that caused an injury that made it to where, oh, I can't go on because my shoulder's separated. Okay, but I'm not going to DQ somebody because it wasn't the blows that he threw. If you want to say they were illegal, he, that's not what stopped the fight. So it's real. It's just ridiculous. You know, are loss. we are we in an era now though where you where most people feel that unless you have held two titles in different weight classes that you're not considered the greatest of all time? Well, I think that you have the. I mean, it's almost it's like judging a fight. We talk about power, or we talk about volume, and you take a look at John Jones. Well, obviously, volume wise. No one has had more championship fights than him. Mm-hmm. So he's got that in the bag. But if you're going to take a look and say, George St. Pierre has two championships in different weight classes. Mm-hmm. He's got the welterweight. He's got the middleweight. All right. So that kind of separates him in the fact that he was willing to move weight classes and was successful in doing so. That's what John's doing now. He's attempting to move weight classes. I give him credit for the way that he's done it. You know, he's taken his time. He hasn't rushed into it. And I do think that uh, 
there's going to be people if he loses there will people that say yeah he's not you know he's not the best fighter ever i'm not too sure that i agree with that you got to take a look at you know his body of work and everything and you got to say overall with the amount of championship fights and what he's done I, it's hard to name someone better if we're putting them all into one category yeah. if we're putting the ones that have been busted, the ones that are not yeah. been busted, the ones and you put them all into one. Just say fighters, period. Yeah, I'd be hard pressed not to say he's not the best. You know, if you want to put an asterisk, you know, <clears throat> the the Roger Maris asterisk of, you know, right. Babe Ruth hit sixty home runs in fifty hundred and fifty four games and it took Maris, you know, hundred and sixty two to beat it. Okay, put the asterisk. I don't care. But if you're gonna just take a look and say fighter. It's hard. You're hard pressed to find someone ever yeah. better, John. I mean, like, do you think I look at look? I look at John Jones in a bunch of different ways. Um, that's because he's worn a whole lot of different hats and different characters. That's the problem. <laughs> that is really the problem. And I think Francis Ngannou. I just read a a, a tweet or a, ta- a a comment that he had made saying John is got multiple personalities. Like he just, it's like, which one is he going to be today? Each one of them can fight though. Yeah. He's going to be the world (laughs) class. He's going to be the world class fighter. Is he going to be the the person, you know, wrecking his car? Is he going to be whatever else? But at the end of the day, he is hands down probably the best fighter that's ever stepped foot in the cage. Yeah. Does it, does it not bother you though? Just to see somebody that has so much God given talent and could have been squander a lot of it well did he squander any of it i mean like yeah he could have done what what it here this is where he squandered i'm not saying achievement wise look he's done it all you know yeah he's got the ability to win the heavyweight championship but still achievement wise and who he fought throughout time and the way he did things you know he's done all that but you cannot sit there and tell me that years from now he, you, me, are all not going to sit there and say what could have been also. Even though as great as he was, think of the time that was squandered. Because if there's one thing, you know, I talk about all the time. You know, I've talked about it. There's, there's nothing more precious than time. Mm-hmm. And it's so valuable. And you learn that especially once it's gone because you can't get it back. And so three years of time, three years, you know, with you know, two years with the suspensions, things like that. How much time was squandered? How much more could John possibly have accomplished if that time wasn't you know used the way it ended up being used? I don't know if he could have accomplished much more in the sport, but he could have accomplished a lot more outside of the cage. Whether it being a role model for young for the youth in whatever okay. area he wanted to to devote his time to um could have been a lot more in terms of helping to build uh projects within their community within his community could have done a lot of things but i think once the the reputation started to fold all those things dried up and and it's it deservedly so but i'm simply saying that guys like gsp their their reputation lingers on because of the, the the personality, because of the things that he, just the way he presents Because the way he handled himself. The way he handles himself. Yeah. And John, 
he could have had all of that and probably more. Yeah, I agree. I mean, you movies and in Hollywood and things like that. I feel like they don't touch him because of the past that he's had. And he could have been, he could have been that next. He could have been somebody like, I don't want to say the rock, but I'm simply saying he could have been given opportunities like the rock to, to be able to shine and do more and develop more and bring in more that would, he could potentially do even more good throughout his communities. And it's sad because I look at him and when he was young and there was a video of me warming up with Habib and it was relatively young. It was when uh, Habib fought Pat Healy. I believe we were in Chicago and um, man, John's back there. He's watching Habib warm up and everything. And, and I see that's like a young John, you know, and John, and I look at him, I'm like, man, and back then I was like, wow, he's good. He's really good. I was more, I was a real fan. And then as I started seeing him have meltdowns, I just, and I tried to hang on as long as I could. Cause I was a fan of him. I was a real fan. I was like, this kid can do, he's unbelievable. Yeah. And then as I you agree. start seeing the, the meltdowns that he had, I was like, man, you're digging yourself even deeper and you're losing people that really are trying to hold on to you. And me being one of them. And that, that was, and I want people to understand how difficult that was for me. Cause I came from AKA. <laughs> there was no love loss for that guy at that gym, but I was a fan. You know, I was a fan of him. And there how was, can you not be? If you're, exactly. if you're talking pure fighting, yeah, that's all. I was if, you're not, if if you're not a fan of John Jones, just pure fighting, you're not a fan of fighting. Yeah, yeah. But when you look at him and Cyril gone, and the three years away, mm-hmm. and. Uh, and the, the the things that Cyril Gaon possesses, the abilities that he possesses, and John, the size difference won't always be is not as big of a factor as it was for the guys he had to fight in the two hundred five pound division. It's not going to be a difference, you know. Yeah. I look at the wrestling. Sure, he's got a huge wrestling advantage, but yep. with the weight being put on, will he have the cardio advantage that he used to have? Also, he was someone that could really slow the pace down in a fight because people had to Control respect his his reach. Yeah. His range, his ability to stiff arm you like a child. You know, he won't have that ability against someone like Cyril Gaon. Um, He still has the wrestling, but does he have the wrestling to wrestle five rounds and continue to get the takedowns? I've said this for the longest time. No one's better than John at keeping you at bay and making you fight his pace. No one, I also believe this, no one's better than him outside of him and Habib, but in different ways, at the dominant control from the top position and the nastiness of the ground and pound Habib would lock your legs down and just hold you there and make you and talk to you and make you pay until you were willing to just give up a submission or you know basically just the ref would stop it pray for the ref John has got that nastiness about him with the elbows and the striking and the top pressure and he's got a hell of a ground and pound yeah it's it's one of the best in the game I've ever seen in my life hands down and I don't know, I mean, this fight may not go the distance, but I take those attributes that John has, that he had at 205. Will they translate, John? Do you think they will at heavyweight? I think what, the part that I look at that I think is going to transfer, no, no, it's, it can't change, is the fact that at 205, John Jones, he out-wrestled Dan Cormier. Mm-hmm. Okay, and... Josh, that is, people don't seem to understand 
what that said when that occurred. Yeah. Because Dan Cormier is as good a wrestler as you will ever find. In our sport. All right. What's that? In our yeah, in our sport. I, in MMA. Exactly. I mean, this is a guy that did it, you know, Oklahoma State. Yes, he lost to Kale Sanderson, you know, in the NC two A finals and stuff, but you know, that was the best NC two A wrestler of all time. All right. And that's who he was losing to. Then he continues on and he wins worlds and he does all these things and he get, you know gets on the Olympic team and all this stuff. The Duke can wrestle. Two time Olympian. Two time yeah. Olympian. And John Jones out wrestled him. In fact, in the first fight, it was so clear that at a certain point, Dan wasn't trying to win the fight anymore. He was trying to get back a takedown because he had been taken down multiple times by John, and it was just he had to show that I could take John down. And, you know, it was you, it was apparent that I can't beat him, but I'm going to at least try to take him down. And he had a hard time doing it. He got, you know, he, he picked him up and he tossed him and John was right back up. Yeah. And that's the, he has, in my opinion, such an advantage in the wrestling department against Cyril because, you know, Cyril got, will try to take people down at times, but look, his wrestling is not that advanced. It's not that clean. It's not that crisp and good. John's going to outclass him there. And if John gets in the top position, against yeah gone i i think it it's over he is gonna have unless he has just very little time to work in that round that he gets the takedown you know he's gonna do damage because i say it all the time as a heavyweight you cannot be underneath your opponent you have got to move you've got to get out because it's there's too much weight too much Damage comes with, you know, the velocity of the shots. You can't take it for very long. And so I just look at it and it's like in the stand-up, I think Cyril Gon can give him problems. I think he's got a lot of good movement. He's in and out. He's difficult to touch at times. John's going to have some issues as far as he doesn't have that big reach advantage that he normally goes into a fight with. It's going to be more neutral. And so... In the stand-up, I think Cyril Gaunt can definitely, you know, be with John for a lot of the fight. Not when it comes down to the, the wrestling and getting on the ground. I just wonder if his cardio is going to translate. Because, like I Don't said, know. He's, he's not someone that has really been known to, like, set a super fast pace. And the fighters that he's had some issues with, guys that were his size and guys that were willing to go ahead and try and set that faster pace. Gus in the first fight, uh, Dominic Reyes in their fight. You know, guys that were able to try to set a pace that, that he just didn't, he, he wasn't comfortable with. He wasn't comfortable with. Yeah. Now, Cyril Gaon, he has conditioning, he has cardio, he's got size, he's got the ability to use lateral movement and strike off of his lateral movement. The next thing is, for me, is does John Chin hold up at the heavyweight division? These guys can crack, man. They can swat. They've got oh, power. Yeah. Yeah. You know, the, these guys have got all of those attributes to really put it on him. And Gus is not, Gus was not known for his power. No. And when he touched John a couple of times, you saw John go, oh, shit, you got me. You got me. You know, and, and so I look at guys like Cyril Gaon, who if he gets there with the speed and the ability to to touch him and not being touched for three years makes a big difference also. Here's what it, it does. But here's here's my question to you. Name me the guy that put John on his ass. I can't. I can't. 
No one. If he's ever been so there, he does have a chin. Yeah, he's got a good chin, and and really the the thing that I look at, I think his chin is going to be just fine, because obviously you get hit with a big shot up there, you could be put out just like anybody. But it is the question of Cyril Gaon has fought at heavyweight. He has fought at whatever weight he's going to be coming in at, and he has fought five rounds at that weight. It is going to be different for John to come in and fight those five rounds, especially if Cyril Gaon doesn't allow him to just control the pace and make it a comfortable fight for him because he's never fought there and he is carrying a lot more weight. He's going to be, you know, as you carry weight, it's just different when you talk about the actual fight. It's different than training because the speed's going to be different. The pace is a little bit different. Just the pressure of everything that's going on creates a bit of an anxiety, which tends to get you a little bit tired. All of those elements, I think, you know, the thing that I have the most, you know, not doubt, but wonder about is how well and not how well trained is he. I know he's well trained, but how does he do in recovering when he does get tired? I'm going to throw a little wrench in here because of the time and how long he's been out. I want people to remember that calf kicks were not really that prevalent when he left. And that could be definitely a big game changer. They were just coming about when he left the sport. I mean, he was three years ago. They were just kind of making a little bit of a wave, and he kind of was inactive, even though he has been at it for three years. If Cyril Gong goes to that calf, John's got those long, skinny legs, by the oh, way. Oh, he's got skinny legs, yeah. <clears throat> well, skinny and, calves. And if Gon gets to, if Gon gets to that calf kick early, and I know John likes to switch, so that he'll have to. I think Gon will have to actually switch as well with him to, to open up on the other calf. But we saw with Logan Storley, and he even said it himself. After two calf kicks, I was a different fighter, completely right. different fighter, and you saw it. And I've seen other fighters that after two calf, calf kicks or even just one. They start thinking about switching stance, or they just don't push off as well as they used to. And John's going to need to wrestle a little bit. John's going to be able to use his distance and his range, but he's going to have to wrestle in this fight. He's not just going to stand the whole time. I don't believe he is. Um, I think his, I think his game plan is to use his wrestling. It's yeah. got to be. Yeah, but you start hitting that calf early. I think it starts changing the way John has to fight. And that makes the fight a little more interesting. John's good on the feet. I have no doubt John could probably beat him on the feet as well because John could beat almost anyone anywhere. But I, when I look at this fight, you you put, you put start attacking that calf, and he switches stance. You attack the other calf. You're going to have to attack both calves because John's switches stances so many times, and he yeah. can do it from both sides. Yep. Um, <clears throat> but then that takes away a little bit of that wrestling, not being able to push off, not being able to lean against you and, and push and you everyone's against the fence. Everyone has their preferred side to shoot. As far as I want my right leg forward. A lot of guys want their left legs forward, but it's just everyone's got the way that they feel comfortable with it. Uh, that's something to keep an eye out, though, when you're watching this fight is does Gone go to the calf and try to change the, the way that, that uh, John Jones can wrestle? Because that, that will make a difference. Good. So, but it, if you're looking at this fight, John, how do, you, how do you really, in reality, let's just say all that stuff aside, how do you see this fight going? I honestly, I think John is going to come out. Cyril's going to come out, and he's going to be moving a lot. It's going to give John some problems in the stand-up as far as the movement and just trying to get to him at times. And I think Cyril's going to have some, you know, success in the stand-up. I think he's going to touch, 
John. And I think John is going to, after the first round, he's going to really start going towards, I'm going to get in the clinch and I'm going to foot sweep you and take you down. And I'm going to start pounding a hole in you, you know, and it's, I just don't see that Cyril Gaon has the ability to stop that. You know, when I watch his fight, you know, against Francis Ngannou, Francis picked him up, you know, and dropped him down. But once he was there, he couldn't get away. Mm-hmm. He couldn't stop. And Francis is not known for his, no. you know, ground and pound. He's not known for his top game. He's known for having power and knocking people out. John's positioning on the ground is outstanding. He puts a ton of pressure on guys. His his submission game is a lot better than people give him credit for. He's got the long levers, like I'm saying, with his arms where he can wrap the head at times. He can do a lot of things to cause you problems. He's great at lacing the arm from behind. Look, he, he just presents problems for guys. And if, if Gon is on his back, the fight's going John's direction. Yeah, I look at the heavyweight division. There's not one heavyweight in that division that I think gives him a hard time. And if there is one, it would be Cyril Gon. That's the only guy I can think. Of. I look at Stipe also, but Stipe's been out for two Stipe's years. Stipe's getting older too. He's mm-hmm. older too now. So yeah. I look at this and I'm like, if I, like Tom Aspinall's coming back from an injury, but he also has a long ways to go. He's, he's not ready. He, he's not ready. That's like a John Jones type fight. It's almost like a Mayweather Canelo. Let me get him while he's young. Absolutely. <laughs> you know? If I'm John Jones, I say, yeah. hey, I'll take I'll take Let Tom me... Aspinall next. Absolutely. Yeah. You know. You know. Uh, but when I look at that division, there's nobody else in that division I can really see. That can give John a hard time. Curtis of- Blades might. Oh, never mind. Sorry, you're right. You're absolutely right. I said that a month ago. I said Curtis Blades is probably the only one that I think would give him a really good time. See, Curtis, the guy who gets left. Boy, he gets left behind. Doesn't he, he gets left behind all the time at every turn. And and I, I just did it myself to him. Damn it! Yeah. I'm a piece of shit. <laughs> <laughs> well, you, you brought up the guy that he just beat in Tom Aspinall. So yeah, but uh, just, yeah, I think yeah. Curtis Blades absolutely presents probably some of the most difficult, you know. Yeah. problems for john to solve i would have liked to have seen dc and, and john at heavyweight yeah. i don't know how it would have been different i'm just simply saying i would have liked to have seen know. dc and john don't know what would have been yeah i don't i'm not saying it would i just yeah. think i would, for me and for my own selfish reasons because i know dc possessed a lot of power at heavyweight he did he had some big crack but then when you see the dc that Got older, didn't want to. He put in the work. He just didn't keep the weight under control. Just wasn't the same. Wasn't the same. No, no. Yeah. But the, the DC that fought in Strike Force, the DC that came in, first came into yeah, into the UFC. DC with the DC. first couple fights. Absolutely. Yeah, the first couple fights. Yeah. yeah. Uh, all right. Next fight. Next fight. Championship fight. Valentina Shevchenko, who I think <sighs> both of us kind of think is a good fighter. Kind of like her style. Going up against Alexa Grasso, and uh, someone that I know you really enjoy watching, someone that has really come along, and she's really come along as a fighter. She's really improved her her wrestling game. She actually, you know, works at taking people to the ground. She was a stand up fighter completely for a long time. I think she's just up against someone at this point in time. She just doesn't uh, match up well with. Hmm. I would have to agree. I think that um, Shevchenko is going to be able to press her to the fence, work on getting that takedown. <clears throat> I think inside the clinch, Shevchenko is the way better fighter. <clears throat> I think Alexa Grasso has definitely gotten a lot better in takedown defense. Yep. But I look for Shevchenko to get to the body lock and try to <clears throat> either foot sweep or pull her away from the fence, lift and, and knee tap her and take her down once she gets to Which the top she's position. she's very good at. She's extremely good at that. 
And once she gets to that top position, I don't think Alexa Grasso gets up. And she'll continue to do that. <clears throat> she'll take Alexa Grasso will take damage on the bottom. I think the easiest way to compare this fight, if you're looking at it, take a look at what happened with Valentina when she fought Jessica Andrade. That's going to be your blueprint for this fight right here. She's not going to stand with, with grass. She knows where, where Alexa is strong. She knows where her strength is. And if there's one thing that you got to give Valentina, fight IQ-wise, she's sharp. And she will take the fight where her opponent is weakest. And that with Alexa, you know that's going to be the ground. No, I agree. And, I mean, like, look, not that's not to say that she can't stand with her. No. She can stand with her and she can take a chance. Yeah. But what that does, though, chance. is that allows her to to make Alexa believe she's going to stand with her to open up the takedown a little bit more. She has that ability to stand enough to get Alexa involved in, like, a firefight. And once she does that, then the takedowns come a little bit easier. Mm-hmm. Next. Great fight, Jeff Neal. Tons of power against Shavkat Rachmanov. I really, enjoy, I think this is a great matchup. I love uh, Jeff Neal and his stand-up and the power that he has. But he's up against a guy that is damn good, very controlling, uh, outstanding wrestling, especially with the body locks and uh, being able to bring someone down when. They normally are able to use the fence. He's very sharp at you know bouncing guys off of the fence, using little taps, knee taps to the inside and outside, inside you know uh, sweeps. Just the guy's got a whole freaking toolbox full of different ways that he takes the fight to the ground. And then once he's in the top position, he normally keeps it. So it's going to be a tough fight you know, between uh, Neil. But Neil's got the power; he can hurt anybody. Yeah, he's got power. I just think that Rachmanov is going to be able to use the reach, use the movement, really try to get Jeff Neal <clears throat> to overcommit. And in that ability, he's going to be able to get a takedown. Once he gets to that top position, he's going to be able to outgrapple, outcontrol, and be able to land some damage with no scrambles, too, on the ground. And I think that's really where it's going to lie. Look, this is also... I look at Rachmanov. This is a real test for him. This His fights before... They were tough, yeah. But, but this is his first real test in the UFC, and this is a guy that can knock him out with one shot. <clears throat> yeah. Jeff Neal's got that kind of power. Do you feel like, like, because Jeff Neal's coming off of a good win? Do you feel like he is kind of being thrown to the wolves in this situation? Like, no, I don't think so. <clears throat> I think this is you know one of those fights where you look and you say, "Hey, we've put you against certain guys, and sometimes you've." You've really looked impressive, and you've had those big fights. You know, what his last fight was against Luque, wasn't it? And he stopped Luque. Yeah, he did. And that's impressive because a whole lot of guys have been in there against Vicente and not not able to do that. And then you take a look like his fight with Wonder Boy, a little bit different, right? So it's a matter of this is a fight. We're giving you a guy that's undefeated. We're giving you a guy that can wrestle. You normally want to keep the fight on the feet. You have an advantage there. Well, let's see if you can actually use that advantage. Let's see if you can keep this guy from being able to take you down. You're going to get your win. And if this guy does take you down, guess what? He's probably going to get the win. Yeah. I don't think it's, I don't think it's a bad matchup for him. Next. Well, we got Mateus Gamrot against Jalen Turner. I love this matchup. And it's a matter of, we know how good Gamrod is. We know how good his wrestling is. We know what kind of controlling fighter is. 
he's exciting too. He'll stay on the feet. I don't think he can actually stay on the feet long with Jalen Turner. Jalen, you know, you're talking about a guy that's definitely going to have a size advantage as far as the reach. The high, you know, six foot three, probably, you know, it's going to have about a four to five inch reach advantage. And he's got a speed advantage. You know, the question is can he stop what Mateus Gamera does? I don't know. I like Jalen Turner. <clears throat> How can that- you not? That height, though, I think is going to work against him. It might the get ability for the ability for Gamrot to get in on the wrestling, get in on the leg, scoop the leg, hit the snatch single, lift the leg, whatever it is. Yeah. Now he will have a little bit of a hard time getting him down. I think because of the height, getting to the legs will be easy. But unless he scoops under the ass and lifts that single leg lift or those flares and all that stuff that you're going to need to get there, it's going to be difficult because lifting him. Uh, on a single leg, he's still going to be on his toes. Right, he's going to be dragging that that foot, man. <laughs> He'll have a, and you know he's got good balance. It's not going to be as easy as we think, but I think after you get one, the second, the third, and the fourth start coming a little bit easier, and then yeah. you start. Then he Jalen Turner starts worrying about the takedown and doesn't sure. let his hands go, doesn't let his kicks go, and then that opens up the ability for Gamrot to start landing strikes to go along with his wrestling, and that's kind of where you end up. In nowhere, like in, in no man's land going, shit, what do I do? Do I strike or do I focus on stopping the takedown? Because now I'm getting hit and now I'm getting taken down. Like I need, you need to figure out what you want to do. I think Jalen's just got to stay on his bike a little bit. Use a lot of lateral movement. Never, never set, let his feet set directly in front of Gamrot. So he's got to step to the side, throw the, throw the punch, the kick, and then move right away. He can't, he can't afford to be lazy with his kick returns. Got to kick, bring it back and move. And if uh, if he can do that, you know, and he's sneaky. He's real sneaky with his stand-up. Real sneaky. The elbows and the knees and the clinch against the fence, if Turner can press Gamrot to the fence, that might be something we take a look at. Because the height of pressing him, hanging on, on Gamrot's head, and then as well as lifting the underhook to be able to to knee the liver, the kidneys there on that side, liver on that side, then that, that right there I think could potentially – be something where he can get some work done, maybe land up in the up into the uh, up to the head as well because of the height difference. It does make for a good fight, but I could see this fight also being very one very one sided. I tell you what, Jalen Turner's really turned the corner in his time at Ruka. You yeah. know, with Jason Perilla, he's gotten so much better in the stand up. He he utilizes a jab now that he never did in the past. He's got the ability to create problems for Gamera. We're, we're it's. It's a stylistic matchup, and you know that's what makes good fights is having those kind of stylistic, you know, challenges. I, I would definitely say Gamma is the favorite, but I would not be surprised if Jalen Turner comes away with a win. Interesting. Next, well, you got it. Bo Nickel coming in, making his uh, UFC debut against Jamie Pickett. <clears throat> Now the question is, who's being who's being thrown to the Lions? Is it Bo Nickel or is it Jamie Pickett? <laughs> I mean, look, the hype I, I don't is think there. It's Bo. The hype, the hype is there, John. Um, and we all we all know that Bo can perform under the bright lights. He's done it in wrestling. He's done it so his far. whole life. Yeah, his whole life. He's done it. So uh, he's no stranger to being put on the spotlight. And I think that he's going to shine again. Um, we'll see though with Jamie Pickett on what what he can possess. I think the way to beat Bo Nickel right now is to catch him in some sort of transition in the grappling department. Um, 
Yeah. In wow. The, in the grappling. Really? In the grappling, not the wrestling. You're going to have to catch him with his head <laughs> in the wrong position. You're going to have to catch him with the... Uh, I just don't see that happening. I can see, I can see, but I don't see that against with Jamie Pickett. I'm saying though, with for this, for these fighters that they that are that will be facing him coming up, a lot of guys with leg locks, a lot of guys with guillotines, a lot of guys that have good positioning. It took Gordon Ryan about 20 minutes to <laughs> finally catch him in a leg lock after putting a whole bunch of leg locks on him. Interesting. You know? I also I think you, the, the guy is not a bad. No, I'm not saying wrestler. He's no, a fantastic no. wrestler. He's not a bad grappler either. Yeah, that's true as well. I think, but in, in a fight, though, you're going to have to catch him in transition. That's what originally what I said. So it's to catch him in, in transition. If his head's in the wrong spot, latch on that guillotine, you know, yeah. arming guillotine potentially, um, you know, over committing, being able to come underneath on the on the, on the a leg lock position and catch him in a rever reverse heel hook. Somewhere along there. Or, you know, and, and just hit him with a flying knee, something along those. Like, you're going to have to catch him, I think, off off guard. If you're looking to get this finish against him, so we'll see if Jamie Pickett can do that. Uh, I, I think Jamie Pickett's best route to victory: keep it on the feet and get into a firefight with him. Make him stand and bang. Make him take shots. That's the way to beat him. But Cody Garbrandt against Draven Jones. That's a good fight. It's not an easy fight for Cody Garbrandt. I look at that and I go. Obviously, he was you know once a champion, you know had an undefeated record for a while there, and then a the couple of losses against TJ kind of switched things around for him. And the real question is, how much, you know, how much has his chin changed? Because it's been touched quite a few times now, and he's he's gotten knocked out, and that's the real question. If you're going to ask who should win this fight, it's Cody Garbrandt. But anymore, I'm not too sure that that's you know. The easiest pick because he has been hurt multiple times. Yeah, we talked about this a little bit the other day. Yeah, and um, <clears throat> I like Cody a lot. You know, uh, he just I has love a, he has a tendency to get into a firefight. Like he has good wrestling. He's got good top position. Um, <clears throat> sorry, excuse me. He doesn't use that, and so it's not always about standing and banging and using your speed. Sometimes it's about just elevating your fight iq and using all the tools you have in your toolbox he doesn't always do that and i feel like that's what kind of costs him sometimes in these boy positions. he did it so well when he won the title against dominic cruz he fought so smart he was so controlled he did he didn't he didn't fall into the traps yeah he did so many good things and you look and you go you got to get back to that guy yeah I guess we'll see. I mean, this yeah. is a good opportunity for him to get back on track. I mean, he fought a very good, very smart fight against uh, Rafael Sansa. And then yeah. after that fight, then he went back into fighting the way that he was fighting before. You know, and trying to trying to win by his balls. And uh, Yeah, and but he, also going down to 125 wasn't. Yeah, that was a very bad decision. That was yes. a bad decision. All right, next. Derek Brunson against Duplessis. That's a that's a that's an interesting fight, you know. Brunson is the better wrestler by far, but he does tend to get tired. And Duplessis, we've seen, doesn't really get tired, man. It, even when he's put out a ton of energy, he still comes. So, I think Derek, if he's going to get a win, he needs to get the win within the first round and a half, or be where he's controlling the pace of the fight. Get the takedown, 
Use his good ground and pound, and he's got great ground and pound, great you know positioning. Use that, make Duplessis work, and then just go back to the drawing board and continue to do it round after round, and he'll get the win. Yeah, I look at, I think the game plan's always been with Derek Bronson is to get the takedowns, control the top position, um, and slow the pace down, and control, and that's it. <clears throat> and also, yeah. all he's got to do is win the first two rounds. And I know this is a shitty way of thinking. You know, if you're... If you're a fan at home and you're listening to this, you're going, great, I got to watch the third well, round. That's going to be boring. That's bullshit and boring. <laughs> but with with Derek Brunson, after you win the first two rounds, it seems like he just tends to go, he wants to put it in cruise control. Now, some of that could be fatigue, and some of that could just be mentality. Look, I've already won the first two rounds. Let's just survive the third, and then I've won this fight. That's a shitty way of thinking, but I... I, I get the vibe and the feeling sometimes when I watch him fight. Like, that's the way he thinks. Like, oh, I've got the first two rounds in the bag. Let's circle, stay away. No, no, no. Keep doing what you were doing. Yeah. You were winning. And then, you know, he doesn't sometimes do that. And so True. Um, then it costs him the fight. But I, I look at it. I think he'll be able to get the takedowns early. It's whether he can continue to get the takedowns as the fight goes on or if he has to get the takedowns as he fights goes on. But he's got to also be a little more active from the top position. Yeah. Because he has a tendency sometimes to not want to gas out, so he doesn't become as active as he, he should be or could be. True he point. also is getting a little bit older. That's another issue. So when you're trying to be an active fighter from the top position, continue to get to takedowns and do the ground and pound, all that shit adds up. And mentally, you also know that you in the past have been known to get tired. Yeah. That wears on you. All of these things build up in your mind, John. You know, like... And it's it's something he's going to be dealing with on that night. So Duplass is with the power. Duplass is with the ability and strong to be able yep. to keep this thing Very on the strong. feet and make Derek Brunson work, especially in that third round. Don't think this fight is over. If you're a fan at home, don't think it's over if Duplass is has lost the first two rounds by being stuck on the bottom because he still has that power in the end. And Derek Brunson has been known to lose fights in the end because of the fatigue. and, and That's true. You know, and backpedaling or whatever it is. So look for this to be a fun fight, especially as it goes on. Yeah. Next. Uh, we've got Viviana Aruhu against Amanda Hibas, mm. which is a good matchup. Uh, I look forward to it. I, I enjoy watching Hibas fight. I think she's. Uh, so do I, John. Technically good. <laughs> she looks good. No. <laughs> technically, she's she got a good ground game. She's, she's got a good, good. stand up. She's, she's just a gamer, so. Uh, Julian Marquez against Marc Andre Barrio, mm -hmm. which is really an interesting fight, I think, because Barrio is tough as hell, just a brawler. Same with uh, the Cuban Missile Crisis there in Julian Marquez. But the question with Marquez, he was with Glory MMA. He's not going to have uh, James Krause in his corner, obviously. It's going to be an interesting fight. He, he he better get it done quick because Barrio just keeps coming. All right. Well, hey, that's going to wrap up our UFC talk. Unless there's any other early, early prelims you want to talk about, John. Nah, I think we're good. You got, you got the, the young upstart in Ian Gary coming against Keenan Song. Uh, <clears throat> Gary's just been looking great. Very young, very talented. Uh, uh, Dave, you got any news for us before we wrap into well, that, though? Oh, go ahead, Dave. Well, so I was just going to say, um, you know, we've been doing these these rankings and um, this one on paper uh, looks like it could be a solid uh, prelims and main card. Yeah. So what would you, if you were looking at this on paper, like what are you, you kind of thinking 
rating wise. It's a nine. Um, Ooh. It's a nine. Let's be honest. You got a heavyweight championship with a guy yeah. that is one of the greatest <clears throat> fighters ever going against a guy that's a stud in gone. That's a great heavyweight championship fight. You, you're getting the one of the best female fighters of all time in Valentina Shevchenko. You got Jalen Turner against Gamro. That's awesome. You get to see Bo Nickel make his debut. You got Cody Garbrandt coming there. You got Derek Brunson. Look, you got a lot of great fights here. I agree with John that he's got a lot of great fights here. But I also look at this card, and I also think that you have potentially a lot of one-sided fights. So I'm going to rate it like John. I'm going to say I'm going to say nine, nine and a half. Ooh, but I could also see you went ahead. You went ahead I of could, me. See, I look could. At that. Whoa. Yeah, I could. <laughs> but I also look at John Jones could be a very one-sided fight. Shevchenko could be, could be a very one-sided fight. Could Jeff be. Neal and uh, and uh, Rachmaninoff could kind of be a one-sided fight. I look for it to be a little bit closer than people think. Yeah. Um, Gamrot Turner, I think if Gamrot starts to get the takedown early, it's going to be a very one-sided fight. Okay. Um, I can also see it being a quick knockout by Turner. Yep. So that would actually throw some flavor into it. I think Bonickel, one-sided fight. Yep, I agree. And then you go to Cody Garbrandt, and that could be oh, back and oh, forth. That's... It could be a throwdown fight. Could be. You know? Um, could be the Garbrandt uses the power, fights smart, knocks him out. Yep, could be. Um, but then, you know, like I said, you get in and then Brun Brunson, it depends on if he gets the takedowns, able to control the top position. That's not going to be a one-sided fight. You don't think so? No. I mean, you can see three rounds of Derek Brunson on yeah, top. You can. Oh, yeah, no you doubt. You can. Look at that. That's the that's the the route to victory for Derek Brunson. Yeah, and then I look at Hebus, Hebus and Arojo. Like, are they, that could be a really good fight back and forth. They're both really good. Yeah. So I look at. I'm going to get nine, nine and a half. I'm going to go with John. But when I when I go back and grade this card. It could be if I give it a bad score, it'll be because it is a bunch of one-sided fights. And that's okay. it. Like, whether okay. you have the talent on there or not, it could okay. be that way. But if they're back and forth battles, shit, I'm, I mean, I'm going to stick with my nine, nine and a half probably. There you go. <laughs> but, like all it. right. What you got, Oscar? Um, you got some news for us there, Dave? The only thing I wanted your thoughts on was uh, this removal of Darren Tell from the active roster. Um, just want to get your reaction there before we get anything. You know, Darren's not saying anything yet, so just... Before anything comes out, do you have any early thoughts here? And then we'll go on air guest. I, I, I look at Darren Till, and he, he's still a good fighter. He mm -hmm. did not look great against Duplessis. Mm -hmm. uh, he got mauled a little bit in one round. Then he came back in the next and then went right back to the being underneath. And Any time that Darren Till is on the bottom, it's not a good night for Darren Till. He is a very sharp stand-up fighter he's got you know a ton of skill but and you take a look at the guys that you know he's been losing to all of them you know good fighters because you know he had robert whitaker christ you know one of the best middleweights there is yeah he lost to Duplessis and he lost to Derek brunson who are now fighting each other but he's just in that that mode right now that he's got to get back to who he was Get back to being that guy that, you know, comes out, puts it on people in the stand-up, and continue to learn your wrestling and get better and better, which he has in some ways. And then in other ways, you look at something, he got taken down by Duplessis, and you go, that should never have happened. Yeah. So I think it, it, whether he fights in the UFC or not, I don't care. It doesn't matter. You know, I don't watch Darren because 
he fights in the UFC. I watch Darren Till because I enjoy watching Darren Till fight. So wherever he's at, I'm going to watch him fight. And if he ends up, you know, staying away from the UFC, great. If he goes back, great. I just enjoy watching the guy fight. I want to say a bunch of positive things. <laughs> okay. I just, I've, I feel that he's lost his way. He lost his way, whether has. whether it's training, whether it's his diet and nutrition. I feel like what happened at 170, <clears throat> yeah. it forced him to train because he, he had to get his weight down. Yeah, I that, agree with that. Now at 85, he didn't have to, and we just, we've seen just the... He's just been dismantled. He's been, he hasn't been the same fighter. We don't see the energy. We don't see the excitement. We don't see, I don't see that in his face. You look at, there's a, the picture that they had of him when they cut him, you know, in the picture that was being shown. It's him sitting down after his last fight and he looks smooth. There's no body tone. There's like, you know, he, his belly's kind of like not fit. Like he's just not, he's not in the shape that a fighter, a professional fighter should look. And I'm not saying that all fighters need to look that way. But I'm saying I remember the Darren Till but from you're before. You're saying he does. Darren does. Darren needs yeah. to look. D Darren <clears throat> at 170 was never was ripped lean. and shredder, shredded. Was never like six pounds. No, he was abs. lean. But he, he had lean. he was lean. You could yeah. tell that he put in the work. His facial yeah. features, his shoulders, his everything was sculpted. You know, he was not shredded like beyond means. You know, but he was he was fit. And when he went to 85, he lost that. And then now the losses, he's got self doubt. And yeah. like you said, he's trying to get Definitely back to where he was at one point. I think also, too, as him getting older, it's going to be, I don't think there's an option for him to go back to 70 now. But he's not old. He's yeah, only he's like not, 30 years old. I know, John. I get it. But then he's going to have to, at that age, at 30, he can make 70 again if he wants. I think he's a better fighter at 170. I agree. That, or if he's going to stay at 185, he needs to get on a on a real program with real coaches, someone that really controls what he does, a nutrition program and a and a and Well, a if he's going to go to 170, he needs to get on a nutritional yeah, program yeah. too. But at 185, he's going to have to put a little bit more weight on in terms of muscle and build because he's getting out. He's getting out strength and some stuff. He's getting out position. Like he's gotten, it seems like he's gotten... I don't want to say worse, but he hasn't evolved to the level he should have over these that. last couple of years. He's still the same fighter that he was when he first came in, but without without the actual cardio now. Like he looked exhausted after that first round. He couldn't he couldn't even stop a takedown where the guy grabbed his ankle. He was like, all you have to do is just turn his heel and step out. He didn't have the wherewithal to do it, which means that's mental fatigue. That's just that just not unacceptable for a professional athlete. And I love watching Darren Till fight. Yeah, so I love I. it, but the last couple fights that I've seen him fight, I yeah, don't I like. Loved it. I didn't like watching that fight. I agree with you. I That's agree with it. you. But you, if you take a look, I mean, on his record, he's got wins against guys like you know Wonderboy Thompson. Mm -hmm. You know, close fight, but he got the win. He's had some great fights. Yeah, it's just you know lately, like you're saying, the, a lot of it is uh, it's the confidence. Mm -hmm. I don't mm -hmm. think he has the confidence now that he once had, and that's that's a big difference. That's true. And it does make a huge difference. Uh, is there anything else, Dave? Give us another one. Give us one more. Uh, I actually don't. I don't have because we, we only prepared certain a certain amount. Damn. Because we have the guest. But yes. Why, why don't you give us your OnlyFans rundown, Josh? Before we roll over. Them? Yeah. <laughs> My OnlyFans, really? My OnlyFans. Your it's your OnlyFans, dude. I love it. I love it. I love it. Look, um, John. I, I say this all the time. I'm gonna continue to say it. 
is that we have sat down with the OnlyFans uh, executives and we have really tried to make a push for their new sports department. And in leading the way, <clears throat> we are working with OnlyFans. So why don't you guys head over to our OnlyFans page. It's OnlyFans.com slash weighing in. We are actually doing a feature uh, next week with OnlyFans with Michael Venom Page. And so when that feature is done, but John and I will be doing um, a quick interview with them next week. And uh, that will be something that they feature with OnlyFans. And that's a that's a huge deal for us. And and to bring more spotlight to the athletes that they have on their rosters. So they have MVP. They've got AJ McKee. They've got Brett Primus. They've got Luke Rockhold. They've got Chris Cyborg. They are really Charles Oliveira they just worked with. So they are working on building up platforms for these athletes to go to and to uh, engage more with their with their fans. And that's why it's called OnlyFans. Um, so that's why we have joined with them and talked to the executives on how we can help build their brand in the sports department, ladies and gentlemen. I want to make sure that we are we are working on this. <laughs> no so one here is getting naked, thank God. I mean, you know. <laughs> Don't tease me with a good time, shit. <laughs> uh, well, Josh, you and I have been talking about weight cutting. We talked about a lot on a recent episode of the weighing in podcast and it is my distinct honor to bring in somebody that i think well no i know is the best executive officer when it comes to regulation in any state athletic commission a guy that i was lucky enough to work with the guy that everyone looks up to my man andy foster from the state of california andy how you doing i'm good john thank you for having me Oh, hell, thank you for coming on because we got a lot to talk about because there's so many misconceptions. There's all these ideas. Josh has got a ton of ideas, and I want you to just systematically destroy <laughs> them for him, okay? But no, uh, I really want to talk about the what's going on in the state of California, in the state of mixed martial arts, combative sports completely, everything that's going on, and what you're doing to try to take that next step forward so we don't we don't have enough time to talk about what's going on in the state of california my friends <laughs> hold on we're not talking about the state of california and all okay. bureaucracy we're just talking okay. about we're just, combative we're sports. talking about sports gotcha i love it um what do you got for us andy tell us what there's a, there's so many different things we want to talk about i mean i could sit here and i could probably have you on for two or three hours but i know uh we're going to try to not minimize your time. We're going to try to make sure that we get the best stuff out of you. Maximize Maximize as much yeah. of, out of it. Um, but in terms of the weight cutting, we've seen issues. We've seen problems with athletes. And you guys have made some changes because we have. you guys did that meeting that we were a part of. John was there. I was there. Uh, Forrest Griffin was there. Some other athletes were there. But we had talked. What, what is the reasoning behind not having same-day weigh-ins? Well, I mean, there's there's several, Josh, but I think probably the most practical reason is the promoters will not go along with it. Okay, that that's that's for that's for one reason. Now, that's that's a practical reason that it's not necessarily the commission reason, Um, because there used to be same day weigh ins in boxing years ago. um, But if we did do that, Josh, because weight cutting has become so prevalent in the culture, I would say that most folks wouldn't wouldn't cut that much. But then there'd be a few that would cut an extreme amount still and try to get into the cage severely dehydrated. Um and then there's going to be some bad outcomes. That that would be my that's what I believe will happen if we were to allow that. And most of the time it'd be fine, 
but then we have bad outcomes on some of the some of the uh, more so than we have now when we allow uh, uh, 30 hours, 36 hours for rehydration. Let's so talk. If we go. Go ahead, John. No, that's go right. Ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. If, you, if we go with the same day weigh-ins, and I'm, I'm going to stay with this only for, for another question or two, but if we go with the same day weigh-ins, but then we also regulate it, say, down the line, say like we're talking as soon as the bout agreement is signed, that they have to send you video or something of them weighing in, whether it's at home or whether the, or whether the promotion... Oh, yeah, they won't cheat. You're need, right. That no, no, happened. or whether the promotion needs to send. They already send... They already send um drug test people there why not send someone there to take video of them making their way and you have a regulate like you have a certain guideline of which they have to be within at the sign of the bout agreement and then you do it again say two weeks out and then you do it again at the the, the week of the event it, it's a process i know it is a process i know it's a lot to work with but making sure that the fighter's safety is number one which is what i know the commissions are supposed to be doing Okay, and making sure that they do that. Hey, once the bout agreement is signed, we check their weight. And then we do it again, say, four weeks out. And then we do it again two weeks before. And then we do it again the week of. Um, look, Josh, it's a lot. <laughs> it's it's a lot. And the, the World Boxing Council does this for some of their bigger title fights. Um, they do like a 30, a 14, and a 7. And, and uh, I think uh, in abstract that makes some degree of sense, but in practicalities, the commission doesn't have the bandwidth to do that for all of the all of the athletes. So then mm -hmm. you have to. We've got enough data for when we get a card. Now we've got weigh weigh in data. We know which athletes on that particular card have a history of doing this. Okay, and we do a lot of these weight checks. We call them up randomly, put them on a scale. If we send Sean Wells or one of the inspectors out to, to, to get a drug test on them, sometimes they get weighed then. Uh, we, have, we have scales uh, that we, we can take around. Um, but, uh, Josh, weight cutting, look, I'm not saying it's a bad idea. It's not a bad idea. I'd love to be able to weigh people all the way up, all the way up. But part of this also has to have buy-in from the promotion. You have yeah. to have buy-in from the matchmakers. Because I can sit here and I can talk to the matchmakers and tell them, look, this person should not be fighting at 170. And oh, please, Andy, come on. They, they, they've got a contract signed. They're professionals. I've, I've heard lots of reasons why they should do this. Um, so it's a balancing act. And a lot of times I'll just move the fight up. I mean, John, you've seen all the catch weights that are happening in California, uh, I'm sure. I mean, you, you've had yeah. to have seen, you had to yeah. have saw that. I assure you that's not by design of some matchmaker wanting to make catch weights. Okay. <laughs> so, I mean, we had like a one the other day that was 137 for a title at, at, at Georgia's show or whatever. Down, so um, th these things happen. Um, but, Josh, th it's a very complicated issue because you're balancing. If you do one thing with weight cutting, there can be consequences on the other side that, that and I've been trying, I'm trying to, trying to basically balance a, a real bad um, model that has came across that, that, and we're trying to make it somewhat better. Uh, and by giving them more time to rehydrate, that's, that is a safer method by giving people more time to rehydrate than going into the cage, totally dehydrated, getting hit in the head. So Annie, let's talk about, you have an extensive, weight cutting uh 
I don't, I don't know how to say it, but extensive studies and the material and all of the information that you have collected from the state of California, let's just put it out. The state of California does by far the most boxing and MMA of any state there is. You double what everyone else does. So you have all of these fights. You've gotten all of this data and information. You've got uh, a program going through the University of Harvard about weight cutting and, and things that are happening. Where is it that you see that there could possibly be a change that would be for the better? Well, I mean, John, I know it's going to sound punitive, but at the next commission meeting, you know, that 15% uh, cutoff is going to, I feel like that will be voted for. Commission's already voted for it once. I think they'll vote for it again. And then I'll run, I'll, I'll promulgate that with the Office of Administrative Law, which means you show up on 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 Friday for a weigh-in, and you weigh 170. The next day, you can't be more than 195 and a half. Now, John, that is a reasonable expectation. If you tell the public you're a welterweight, you should be able to be below 195 and a half pounds. You should be able to be below that. The problem is, and you saw our data, we've got quite a few fighters that aren't making that, and. We're, the state of California is not going to regulate that once we pass that regulation. It's not going to be up to Andy Foster's discretion anymore because I get put in a box and I'll, I have to kill these fights. And, you know, I do it. I do it. It's my job. But it's not a pleasant experience sitting there. If everybody knows the rules, you cannot be more than 15% above where you were the day before. That's a reasonable expectation, and people will, people will begin to follow the rules. And that's the first step, John, I feel like, is putting a line in the sand. Well, that's exactly what, when we were at the meeting, that I suggested. I had suggested not exceeding the next weight class above. I mean, you guys are giving more at 15%. You're giving more than that next weight class above in most cases. So why, why is it not just considered to be the next weight class above? Josh, you know, really, to be honest with you, that came from your from we, we took notes at that thing. This this was this was partially your idea that, that it came from. It's where we got this. The oh, problem is, you. and John saw the information. Oh, my God. We just blew that one, didn't we? Yeah, I've got a big head, Andy. Now I want to just say thank you very much for letting everyone know that I actually came up with a great idea. Thank you very not much. Not that great, because here's your problem. <laughs> Go ahead. Let's hear Andy, it. did you not? try to do 10% before and it just created nothing but problems for people as far as getting the suspensions and what promoters want and everything. And that's why you're now moving to that 15%. Well, John, what we had was before was 10%. 10% is still the magic number. That's where we're hoping fighters don't exceed. And we, we flag them above 10%. We send them weight notices and all these different things. But when we initially come up with this plan, I did not want it to be a punitive thing because this thing's for the health and safety of the athletes. So it's like I'm having to argue with athletes to be safe, and I didn't want to be punitive about it. So, but John, you saw the numbers. I sent them to you today. I have a problem. We have a problem here in California. And if we have it, I'm sure the other states have it as well. There are a lot of fighters, not a lot, but there's a, enough to where 15% is such a large amount, and we've got people exceeding that, that you've got to start somewhere. And Dr. Wallace and the medical committee's idea is, let's start at 15%, have that for a while, and slowly try to move it down, slowly over time. But 
you know, the 15 percent's a line in the sand. It's the it's the first time it's done. And John, Josh, it's entirely reasonable. A welterweight should be able to be below 195 and a half the day of the fight. Yeah. Have you had? I know that you guys have had several conversations with the promotions, but if you were to say, "Hey, look." We're going to start with the 15% and then start working our way down to potentially 10. But let's talk about potentially adding just one. I think I think the, the standard right now is just one weight class. It's say 170 or sorry, 175, 165, 175. And then it goes 10 pounds, right? Now just don't exceed that 10 pounds. And then as the fighters get better, John, I know you're laughing right now, but just hear me out. Go ahead. As you're, and I understand he's talking about moving it from 15 and working his way down. And I'm talking about you, over. You realize time you're as talking well. about less than 10. percent I am. Uh, you're yes, talking I about am. less than 10 percent by far. I am. I do. And right now, I do understand and right that. now at 15 percent, they have about three percent of the fighters that are over that. And at yes. 10%, you have about 20% yes. of the fighters over it. So if you would let me finish. So go if ahead. you continue to go on, right, and you're saying, Andy, over time that you're cho- hoping that these fighters will eventually look, start taking care of their bodies and then realize that they just got to go to the next weight class up. So now if you actually implement 10-pound weight classes all the way up to, say, 195 or 18, keep it at 185, 195, if you do that, then those fighters don't have to worry about cutting as much weight. Because they will eventually put themselves into a box of, say, 185, 175, 165, because they understand that it actually is hindering my performance, and I can fight with these guys at 165. I can fight with these guys at 175. You're going to split a little bit of those guys, obviously, but have you had these conversations with, because I know John tells me all the time, the weight class is already there. 165, 175 is there. For the health and the safety of the fighters, let's talk to these promotions and say, hey, this is the best way also to go along with the weight cuts to make sure that our fighters are safe. And if they're not understanding, then that puts a lot more of the burden back on them instead of putting it on the commissions for having to do so much regulation. I know you guys are trying. It's obvious. I've been in the meetings. But has that not been a conversation with them? Um, it, 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 it's hard, Josh. Uh, it, look, it's a great <laughs> idea. Know. I'm not saying it's not a good idea. But I have to have promoter buy-in to do this. Yeah, the promoters have got to want, and when I say the promoters, I'm specifically talking about the matchmakers. Okay, mm-hmm. I think that's the important piece of this. The matchmakers have got to want to fight. The, and look, I don't even want to put it on the matchmakers, guys, because it's not really they're being told by the fighters. Oh yeah, I mean I can make 155, and they're walk, the guys walking at 205 right now. They're being told these mm-hmm. things. And that's why when, John, you saw the data I sent. I mean, I've got all this data. When we get one of these fighters, we kind of know. And then we see what weight class, based on where the promoter submits the card, where they're trying to fight them at. And the first thing I'll do to the staff is I'll say, okay, Lee, go ahead, Tricia. We need to wait on this one, this one, and this one. And, um I, I, look, I, I haven't really saw, John, what you're talking about, like with the gaming of the scale, I'm not saying it could not happen because it absolutely could, especially Easy. if you give the fighter a chance to video it. What I mean is like, it's been my experience just when we do these web things that they they haven't cheated on our videos that I can tell yet uh, because mm-hmm. they're about they're about that same weight when you know when we weigh them. Uh, a week or two out when we see them, at, you know, when they show up for the uh, fight week. But 
they absolutely could be cheated. And so that's something to consider as well. Um, well, even at one time you were considering using, you know, specific gravity tests and different hydration tests, similar to what one FC came up with. Mm-hmm. And then you went into the whole thing where you realized it could be cheated and it could be cheated fairly easily. John, I've, yeah. I've bought so many specific gravity tests for the commission <laughs> and we used them over the years and those things are, Look, I mean, I don't want to call them they're worthless. But, they're worthless. Yeah. Go ahead. You can, you can call them worthless. They're worthless, they are. Andy. Well, the, kind of the, the problem as is. Soon, as soon as I water load, yeah. that thing becomes absolutely worthless. Yeah. I mean, like, what is it, what is it on the specific gravity? I'm doing it off of memory here. But like 1.0, I think, is water. Okay. Mm-hmm. And anything 1.03 is incredibly dehydrated incredibly dehydrated but what happens john and josh is the fighters have drank so much water between Mm -hmm. the weigh-in and the fight that when we test them the next day they're peeing close to pure water because of of uh they put so much water back in their system hence the tremendous weight gain and if you try to run specific gravity testing um at the weigh-in you're just not even going to be able to get a sample I mean, forget that. Yeah, I, but my my what I was what I was getting at though was <clears throat> the week of because I know when you showed up, when you show up to events, you guys have started doing where you you weigh them mm-hmm. the week like as soon as they arrive, the promotional weigh of them, and they'll submit the weights to the commission, and the commission understands where they're at. So then they have a good understanding of how much weight they really need to cut upon arrival. But in a lot of cases, the fighters that you've been talking about that are that are on the watch list, those fighters start cutting Thursday, Friday before yeah. they even show up in wherever they're at in California. You know, they show up in any venue they're at in California. They're cutting weight Friday, Saturday, Sunday, Monday. They're cutting two, three pounds at a time, you know, and they're not trying to rush it. So them showing up to check their weight, it's almost like you want to catch them. I shouldn't say the word catch. You want to get an idea, a good idea of where they're really at before they're depleted. So then you have a good idea of where you need to focus your energy on with them for safety. And I look at the ideas of what can we do? And the only thing, John, that I and Andy, that I can come up with is having a weight class every 10 pounds and not allowing those fighters to exceed it. And I know the promotions are giving some pushback on this because the sport was founded with obviously 55, you know, 70, you know, 85 and so on. But adding that extra weight class at 65 and then moving 70 to 75, it really does. If, you, if the commissions can go along and try and say, hey, to these promotions for the fighter safety. We Doesn't need to matter. make it, you know, Doesn't and matter. that's, that's where, that's where we're relying on this, John. And, and this, we got to put a little bit more back on the promotions and not rely, not put all the focus on the commissions. Like as if it's the commission's well, fault for not regulating this. A I'm going to say this because Andy's not okay. One okay. of the things that you have to consider, Josh, and no matter what, every, I'm getting ganged up on over here, no, Andy, no, no, come no, on. No, this is not, <laughs> <laughs> every athletic commission is a business unto itself. Absolutely. Nevada is self funding okay meaning that the money that they pull in is how they pay their people okay california is a little bit different but all of these athletic commissions they're almost in business against each other because as soon as andy 
goes and puts very strict regulations against, you know, weights and does what you're saying will say, says, you know yeah. what? I'm I I'm gonna have this where you can't weigh more than the next weight class. Yeah. Okay. Guess what happens? They stop coming to they the stop California. coming to his his business. Yeah. Okay. And and so that becomes it. It's counterproductive. It just doesn't. You, you can't just arbitrarily. Yeah. Put all these regulations and and yes, you're the safest one and you're the one that no one does fights at because of it. True. Hey, well, I mean, John, you know. Obviously, the commission. I know you were using it. Thing. Obviously, the the the, the commission is a state agency. The commission's a, a government agency, and I know what you mean. But what you're talking about is the business would go away. The business yes. we, we wouldn't mm-hmm. we wouldn't have private businesses wanting to do business with the state of California if I became too strict with the regulations. Um, and and kind of the balancing act that I'm trying to figure out, and I've not done it yet. I'm, I keep trying to put different things into the into the formula is the balance between uh, obviously the protection of the public and protection of these fighters is is paramount but you've also got to throw in the the uh, you know what's good for the sport in general and it's a balancing act and I'm um, I think this 15% line in the sand John if we have a line because right now we do not have one anywhere okay and it's such a big line that I fairly, I, I think that a lot of the promotions would be supportive of this particular line because at least there is a line. What Once about the have- other? What about the other regulatory bodies? Because that's important that you get them all in line with that same percentage, so that line in the sand extends no matter where the fighter goes. And I'm working on that, John. I've got to do it here first. Um, I've got to do it here first, but I'm also having talks with the ABC Medical Committee, which, you know, I'm part of. And I think they're all, in fact, there was, the the doctors thought this should be lower than 15%. Uh, uh, I mean, they were fine with 15%, but a lot of them were saying, well, and then we showed them the data and they're like, whoa, wow, you know. (laughs) So, I mean, because you saw the data, we've got, what, 20% of the fighters fighting over 10% right now. And, and that's with all of our weight checks and all of the things we, we do and all of the uh, precautions. And, and imagine how many, I mean, this is, this is a rampant problem across the sports. To me, it's the biggest problem in mixed martial arts is how do you fix this? Because I think if you fix this, you fix a lot of other things that go along with, with, with combat sports. Yeah, I agree. I mean, do you look at it, though, also where you can say that these fighters, I don't even know how to say this. Like, if you were to have, like, an edge, I don't even know how to say it, John. Like, how do you get these fighters into an education where they should be able to see the results? Guys like Masvidal, guys like Dos Anjos, guys like even Benson Henderson that went up to 70. They didn't have to kill themselves. They fought at 70. They had good performances. Shit, Masvidal's fought for the title twice. I mean, like... He's had runs where he could have potentially been the world champ at the weight class above. He spent most of his career killing himself to get out at 155. Is there just no way of educating these fighters and letting them know that you potentially could have better performances at a higher weight class if you just decided to do your nutrition properly and to put the weight on properly, build muscle properly, do all of these things without killing yourself? I mean, spend more time maybe educating these guys instead of trying to combat them how do you get them 
How do you I get them know, in? Well, no, That's saying, what the I'm commission just, is for. No, 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 <laughs> because the commission <laughs> is not in charge of any that. fighter unless they have that fighter licensed. They can't do anything with them unless mm. they're licensed, and then they can have some impact. Do So when they are licensed, sending them, uh, I don't know, sending them video footage or video or something along and on an education system, like sending them some sort of, I don't know, education that allows, shows them the effects, not just to their body, but also the performances they potentially could have if they didn't cut this weight. I'm, look, right now I'm playing devil's advocate, obviously, because the two of you guys are ganged up on me, and I'm okay. I'm, I'm waiting for this. Bring you. it I'm just on. Telling bring you it on. the truth. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, no, Josh, I think you have a lot of wonderful ideas. I mean, it's a good ideas. It's just, uh, you know, whether, whether we can implement them or not. I mean, from what you're talking about with the education, we've got videos out. Um, mm -hmm. I mean, they don't have that many views because I don't think the fighters <laughs> are that interested in watching our videos, but we have them. They're out there. Yeah. Um, if, if I made the watching the video mandatory, I don't yeah. know if they'd really watch it, even if no. I told them to. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And like, you got to come to California and take a test. Make sure that you watch the video. <laughs> <laughs> nah, I get it. I, I understand. Look, I really, I really am. I, I'm extremely interested in this conversation based on that. I cut. I, I didn't cut a lot of weight, and then I see the next generation of fighters that have come after me, and they are extremely big, extremely big. I mean, like I, I remember when I first fought. Uh, when I fought Eves Edwards, Joe Rogan's on on air going, Josh Thompson's probably one of the biggest lightweights, if not the biggest lightweight I've ever seen. You look at me now inside that cage. I know I'm a little withered now because I'm older. <laughs> but even towards the end of my career, even I was not featherweights were bigger near. than it's, you. Yes, I had guys that were featherweights that were bigger than me. And these guys are enormous. I mean, they are extremely big and they are cutting a ton of weight. I'm just trying to find ways to to check their weight maybe early in the camp to see exactly where they're at, check their weight upon arrival, you know, and then as obviously they can't exceed once they do weigh in, they can't exceed, I say the next weight class above, but I can understand the 15%. That's a great idea. I think the 15% is a good starting point. It absolutely is. But where do you go from there after that? Are you giving it a year or two? Are you giving it, are you seeing where the progression goes and how the, how successful it is? Well, it, I, how do you... Josh, I got. I have a theory, John and, and John and Josh. I have a theory that if we put this fifteen percent in place right now, John, you've got the data. I think I'm losing three percent of the MMA athletes above fifteen percent. Okay. Yep, about two percent of boxers, three percent of MMA. I think I I think I lose zero percent of both groups. Okay, and, yeah. and here's why I think that. I think the matchmakers will be more cautious that's the word I'll use, to match fighters in weight classes that they're concerned about. And I think the fighters will be more cautious uh, earlier in their camp to make sure that they meet the, the, the California number when they come back. Because uh, you, you guys both know that they're, they're not going to want to affect their performance on fight day. Um, mm -hmm. They're, they're going to want to try to win. And, John, you saw the numbers. You saw the, the – the, it's, it's my experience that – um, this is not always true. It's in my experience that the more money that's involved, the more weight fighters are willing to cut. That's been my experience by watching it. Well, you're saying 3% of the MMA fighters are the ones that are exceeding the 15%. Correct. 
what is keeping these promotions from just not booking those fighters in your state when they fight? Because they're really good fighters. <laughs> well, and you know, Josh, it's an interesting question because I've, uh, you know, I've had, I've had, I've had promotions tell me, "Oh, we're not gonna, we're not gonna come to California because this guy's a huge weight cutter." <laughs> I've actually had that <laughs> had that conversation before, uh, but they said they still came. They just used that fighter in a different place. Um, but that that's only happened once or twice. Uh, most of the time, it's just uh, they know that they're coming to California and they're going to have to. Because I mean, John, you were well, you were the referee, I think, that night that I canceled one of the Bellator fights uh, at Pachanga. Were you were you the referee, or were you still were you commentating at that time? Was it Pachanga? Oh no, no, you, I was I was refereeing then. Yeah, you remember that? I canceled the yeah. fight. Yeah, but that was because the person was. Oh my God! They came in. I want to say 27 pounds over what they weighed in at. Yeah. 19%. Yes. And, yeah. and, and I mean, he had had three warnings uh, up to that point. And the, the other problem of that, I, I don't, I, I'm going on memory, John, but you probably remember too. It was I'm like 55, the 55 on Thursday at the weigh in, he was like 187 or something or 188, some big oh. number on <laughs> on Friday and his opponent had only gained to like 164. So like you had a massive swing between the two yeah. of them. And that, Where were you when I fought when I fought Pat Healy? He weighed in at one, <laughs> 155 and he weighed 192 by the time I fought him. I needed you in my corner for that one. That guy was heavy. Jeez. Yeah, I mean um but you agree I mean guys that that's dangerous. You agree? I mean does that is uh, when there's that much weight well, you truthfully don't have guys fighting in the same weight category. Yeah, they weighed in at it, but now they're not. And that's that's the problem, and that's the whole thing with weight cutting. It should be. It should be that you're fighting somewhere close to an individual that is close to the same size. And sometimes we get ones that guys are, you know, some guys and some girls are just really good at cutting that weight, and they put on a lot of weight. Well, when you look at like when you look at like the promotion, like one, they do the hydration test, and I've I've said this repeatedly because we had hydration tests in college wrestling, and they're they're pointless. They're they can be cheated very easily. You can do the static ways also, which also can be cheated. There's so many different ways to just cheat the system when it comes to making weight. Yeah. Um, what kind of what kind of change like when they're because they're talking about coming to Colorado. How does that change in terms of like for a call, for them to come over to Colorado and then the weight cutting? Do they still need to implement their own system or will because they don't weigh what they actually weigh in at? So how do you make those changes? Like in terms of he says he's fighting at flyweight. Well, that guy's not a flyweight fighter if he's weighing in at one thirty five. Do you just change the name of the category or? Yeah, I'm not. I'm not sure. I understand. When you when you take a look at, and it's not it's not Andy State, and that's why he's not yeah, sure. I, One yeah. FC is going to be going to Colorado. Colorado has agreed to certain uh, rules and stuff. But when you look at, you know, he's asking, have you talked to anybody from there, or do you know, are they going to use what is the unified rules for weights, or are they going to use what One uses because they'll say a flyweight can weigh in at one hundred and thirty six pounds. Oh yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't know what. I mean, who knows? I mean, Colorado's letting them have knees to the head on the ground, from what I understand. So they're probably letting them use all their rules, I would imagine. 
Um, we're, we're not gonna we're not gonna be having knees to the head on the ground over here anytime soon. Uh, you know. <laughs> gotcha. Um, there is something off of the weight cutting. Is John? Do you have any other questions no, about the ahead. weight cutting? Uh, there's new. There, you guys are in conversations about fighters' pensions. I, w- I was going to talk about that. Okay. You you have legislation that's been put in place that there's you are trying you in the state of California you have had pensions for boxers and that's based upon boxers having so many rounds that they do in the state of California throughout their career they could get a pension well now you've introduced and it's in legislation that that they can have the same thing for MMA fighters can you talk about it yeah assembly member Matt Haney from San Francisco sponsoring assembly bill 1136 it was introduced it it, it essentially um, creates an MMA uh, a pension fund like the boxers already have the boxers have had this benefit in California since 1982. It was revamped to 96. Mixed martial arts have been regulated since 2006 in California, but they've never had this benefit. Uh, the commissioners wanted to get this done. This was part of their strategic plan. Um, so I'm, I'm trying to, trying to, uh, uh, I, I tried hard to, to get it done. And Mr. Haney's willing to sponsor it. Um, and we're going to try to move it through the legislature. Uh, I want to be very clear, John. This doesn't take general fund money. It doesn't take taxpayer money. This is this is coming from commission assessments on the promoters. The fighters pay nothing into this. But I want to be also clear. It's not like life changing money, John. I mean, the average since since 2012, when I was appointed in 2012, uh, I think we've given out 171 of these pensions, um, and uh, it's a, like an average of $19,000 one time. They get it one time. Okay, so it's not like some kind of vast sum of money, but at the same time, nobody else is doing it. That's for, that's for one thing. <laughs> nobody ha- the, the 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 fighters don't have to pay a penny to it, and uh, you know the taxpayers don't have to pay a penny to it. So yeah. I, I don't really see it's too a much of a downside. Right? So but, yeah, but then what you're taking though, you're saying nineteen thousand for the boxing, but boxing has been known um to pay more than mma top you know the mma promotions so but there's also you tend to find more fighters on an mma card say 15 fights on a card all the way up to 22 fights as john and i know sometimes is that you'll have 22 fights on a car are you charging a flat fee for those promotions that have to be paid into this pension or is it per fight or is it per fighter well, I mean, the what? So the legislation creates the fund. The commission has to draft the regulations, but there are emergency regulations per the way the current legislation would be drafted. So if it passed, the commission could adopt emergency regulations. So what that means, John and Josh, is like so bills take effect on January first of the year. So if they run it in twenty twenty three and it passes, and the governor were to, was to sign it then on January 1st, it's effective. Then the commission has to draft regulations. So since they're emergency regulations, they would, that would, the, the, the plan would become effective around July 1st of 2024. And at that point, then, 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 then we're active. And it's like a flat, uh, we're talking about a dollar a ticket with no cap. So Josh, to go back to your point, the cap in boxing is 4,600. Um, there's talking about no cap and mixed martial arts. So let's say like a Bellator uh, that was down at the, uh, uh, you know, if they have like 10,000 people, okay, 10,000 tickets sold, that'd be $10,000 to the fund. And 
UFC comes, more money to the fund. Smaller shows, more money to the fund. And since California runs so many, and the vesting requirements are, are I won't say they're ridiculously high. They're not. But, but Josh, you know, this is a lot of fights to fight in California. Yeah. Vesting requirements, 12 or 13 fights, okay? You fight mm-hmm. 13 times in California, you're a California fighter. Everybody knows you yeah. came up in the California system. This is a California program. But whether you live here or not, if you fight here 13 times, or that, that's, that's the, that, that, it's somewhere between 36 and 40 rounds uh, scheduled. So it's something like 12 yeah. or 13 fights. Um, that's a lot of fights. That's, that's the that, current framework. I meet that criteria pretty easily. You would. Absolutely. <laughs> Uh, well, so you're saying that it doesn't really fall back on the promotion then? It just falls back on how many tickets they sell and you take a percentage, say it's a dollar per ticket. Correct. I mean, that's the way the framework's set up. Now, we have some other uh, ideas that I uh, don't want to talk about specifically, but there's some other revenue generating ideas uh, that could significantly increase that, 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 that uh, income generation that we'll be rolling out. Uh, kind of in tandem with this legislation, or that's kind of the idea, um, because the idea is to try to do something for the for the fighters, um, and you know, it looks like California is gonna 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 try to get there first. Is that um, is this also towards uh, like say you have you have uh, amateur fights? Does it also count towards the amateur fights as well? No. Okay. Not the fighters, I'm saying, but the, the events that they say there's an amateur fighter or an amateur event. Is that dollar also being taken from that ticket to go in towards this pension? That's what I meant. It's a good question. We haven't decided that particular point yet. Got it. Got it. Okay. I think one of the most important things to think about with this, though, is you're sitting there talking about the amount of money. And I, and I go back to certain boxers that I know that have gotten that pension. And some of them, you know... Chicanito was, you know, Gennaro Hernandez was, you know, on death's door with cancer and was able to at least get some money for his family. And he, he got quite a, you know, a good sizable chunk because he did a lot of his career in California and stuff like that. But this is, you know, Josh, we, we talk about all the time. Sometimes you got to give up your old life to start your new. Yes. And this could, this could allow someone to go to trade school. It could allow them to go to, you know, online college and get their degree. And that way they can start their life anew from there. You know, it's something that, no one gave you anything, did they? No. <laughs> so, I was actually wondering if this could be retroactive. No, no, it's not. You're not grandfathered. <laughs> <laughs> can, I, can, I, can I grandfather this in? Uh, but no, John, you made up a good point, Andy. This is definitely something that, um, in terms of what California does, this is definitely something that I feel like John was saying is good for the fighters that after you're done. It gives you it gives you a little a fallback for you to either start, like you said, a trade school for you to be able to um, establish yourself, either pay your rent until you're able to get picked up by a police force or a firefighter academy or something along those lines that could get you into a, a career long job, something that you can do for the next 30, 40 years to take care of your family. It's very important because fighters are lost. Athletes, period, just period. Athletes are lost after they get done with their career. They believe it's going to last forever and it doesn't. And Andy, I mean, have you come across that? I would imagine you've come across this a lot of times where you pass fighters at old at events and they're lost. Fighters that you'd seen fight several times and there was nothing to fall back on. Well, I, I do come across it. And, you know, Josh, you, you know this, John, you know this. There's a certain um, 
there's a certain need for these fighters to to have these combat sports, especially earlier in their lives. I mean, they like it. They need it. Uh, Josh, I know you still train. John, you still train. I still train, but we don't – we don't – I'm talking about when you're younger, there's a need for this. They, they, there's a real – you know, people find a lot of benefit in, in combat sports. Um, and I think this is just really the state's – kind of the effort of the commission and the, 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 and the assembly member Haney and the assembly just basically acknowledge, hey, and, and there's there's something after this. And kind of the uh, – kind of we're looking after or looking out for, for their uh, – for their future in, in a little bit. I mean, it's, it's a, it's a, it's not, it's not, it's, I don't want to make it more than it is, but um, it, it, it is something that we're trying to do. I, I, think I, I like, I like, I it. think it's a great thing and I really hope it passes and I like your other ideas. I can't say what they are, but they're good ideas and they can, they can put a lot more money in that fund and I hope those come through. But here's the one that I got to, I got to ask you about because a lot of people don't know that you used to fight. You were a competitive fighter. You fought in some big fights, and uh, you you were great at getting an armbar. I mean, it just... <laughs> but I, I want to talk about the fact that you've done a fantastic job of taking, you know, the state of California and your crew, and you've really incorporated what a lot of people wanted to see, but you've done it in a way that's been logical and smart about the officials that you you have working for you because you have some of you know old-time officials that have been around for a long time like herb dean and you know he's absolutely old as dirt just like me and that's awesome but the new people that you're bringing in you've brought in a lot of guys that were ex-fighters you got guys like frank trigg refereeing you got guys like chris lieben who are judging for you Rafael davis is doing both you got Felicia O, who was the first female black belt here in America under Jean-Jacques Machado. You've really reached out in trying to get a, a huge knowledge base of both MMA, jiu-jitsu, all these things with the people that are being the officials for your fights. Yeah, I mean, John, it's really that that's really kind of a simple thing. And, you know, you and I talked about this 10 years ago. You know, uh, and and this was one of the things that uh, that I was planning on doing, and and I and I've, I've kind of uh, I finally got there. Um, is I is Josh? You fought so many times. Uh, I think you get this a hundred percent. But if you're going to be judged, or you're going to be officiated, I would like for you and for the fighters to be uh, judged and officiated by other martial artists, by, by your peers, okay? I want you to be judged, not not people you're currently competing against, that would not be correct, but people that have competed in the past and now they've moved on, this sport should be oversaw by those people. This sport should be regulated and looked at by those people, or at least some of them. They should be making the decisions on who wins fights if they're trained and they know what to look for. They should be making the decisions on when to stop fights because they've been there. They've got their head pounded. They know how much. And there's also that, it's hard to teach this, John, but what is that thing where, you know, a fighter wants out, but they want to get out of honorable and they're looking to the referee to help them? You, you know what I'm talking about. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, yeah, I've got, I've, got the, I've got a lot of good guys that I've brought on. Um, and, and like you call them, they're, they're the crew and, 
I almost call this, John, my second generation crew because my first generation crew, uh, thankfully, has gotten so good that they're judging all over the world now, as you as you probably have saw. Yep. Um, so, yeah, I've got, a, 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 you know, um, uh, looking to do some good things with Chris Lieben. Um, I've, Felicia's been been coming along, been, been, been we're trying to move her along. Uh, Rafael Davis has been doing good. I got Jonathan Romero down south. Frank Trigg, he just did the title fight in Bellator, um, uh, one of them. Um, obviously, Herb, Herb, it's the way I do it in California. My top referee gets the big fights, and Herb will get all the big fights he wants if he wants to do them with me. Um, but I got a lot of good guys. Mike Beltran. Uh, uh, Jason been, Herzog. Jason Herzog. He's got the co-main event coming up at Bellator. Jason Herzog's an excellent referee. Uh, one of the best. Um, and and um, I've got a, a lot of high level, like Felicia Elliot Kelly's a high level practitioner. Um, Wade Vieira has got a long background in all the all of these sports. So it, it's just that's that's my thoughts. I guess that's a long winded saying thing that I I believe this sport should be officiated by other martial artists. Well, in in doing that though. Do you think that's going to help take away some of the criticism that that obviously the no. judging's been getting lately? And I don't think it is. And it's that's not. why I'm bringing this. I'm bringing this up is you hear the commentary, and some and it's not John, but other other promotions. You hear their commentary. You hear, or you hear the promotion or the promoters complain about the judging. And what does that leave you though, in terms of like how do you affect? How do you jump in and affect uh, and talk to your judges? And your refs on and their position and their jobs when you're when obviously there's a lot of criticism coming towards your your employees. Um, well, John, I mean, John, you'll you'll I think you will agree to this, and uh, uh, you, you tell me if you don't, okay? Because I'd like to hear your perspective. I'm not asked you this, but I feel like MMA officiating, uh, specifically judging, is better than it ever has been right now. Okay, I mean it's been it it was it was pretty bad twenty years ago. Um, and, <laughs> yes, it was. And I feel like Josh, it's, Josh knows that. <laughs> yes, I feel like it's gotten better. I feel like it's gotten better. Now, is there room for improvement? Sure, but you know you've got a you've got a situation, John. And, and John, I don't know how to fix this. Okay, I really don't. But like, I feel like the consistency in the eights are pretty good right now compared to what they were 10 years ago. You agree with that? I do. Overall, I mean, every now and then we'll get a fight that I go, I do not agree with the judges and the way they go with it. But most of the ones, what we have is when we have people say, oh, it was a robbery. No, it was a close fight. Yeah. And what the one thing that I really, and it, unless you sit in that seat, you'll have no idea. But you know, Andy, Josh knows because, you know, I've talked to him and he has actually sat there in one location and watch the fight it's completely different than people realize mm -hmm. and it's way different when it's your name going on a card and you know it's it actually counts it's one of the hardest things to do it is incredibly difficult when you have a close fight well andy this is the thing when you hear people say it's a robbery or they say that person lost the, should have won the fight or anything along those lines those are the same people that are sitting in a group in a room filled with other people as they talk, beer. they check their phone, they drink their beer. They're not actually watching the fight. 
And so when I hear these robberies, and it's it's even hard for commentary to say who won the fight. You want to know why? Because they're talking yeah. about the fight. And as you're watching the fight, you're actually picking one side more than the other side because that fighter landed the harder shot. Now all of a sudden you're watching that fighter. Where the judge is watching the fight as in in its entirety. It's watching one fight, one fighter land. Now boom, the other fighter lands. Boom. Now I'm going tit for tat. Which one came out with the better outcome? The commentary doesn't always do that. The crowd is obviously not always paying attention. And the people at home on a couch, they're definitely not paying attention. They've got kids running in the background. you got friends cheersing. you got people eating pizza. You've got it all going on. To say that someone was robbed, it's got to be a blatant robbery. But I've also found that the same, that and, I, and this was very public as of recently, it tends to be the same judges that have inconsistencies. And how do you deal with something like that? Well, I mean, um, I mean, you know, there's a there's a couple of my my kind of my school of thought on this is before you get to sit in the seat, have you done? I mean, what have you done to sit in the seat to assess other martial artists? That's for one. Then when you get there, how are your scores? I mean, are you, you you consistent or whatever? But if you get a bad score, Josh, you need to sit that judge back and take them back and protect them. You certainly don't want to put them back out there because people are going to make mistakes. They're only human, okay? And the media has gotten pretty good about pouncing on whoever's making a bad decision. Now, if it's if it's the same judge and you're getting this over and over and over, then we, we probably have a problem with that particular judge. But if it's an anomalous type type thing where it happens once every so often and they're judging often, like, like I mean, John, how often does Sal DiMotto score? How often does Derek Cleary score? If they have a bad score every now and then, I think, I mean, the public should be able to live with that because they're not out there trying to mess up. Nobody's trying to mess up. No, they're um, not. You know, um, but if the, if it happens all the time, but notice when, I mean, um, what Sal had a little bit of a, of a kind of a weird score, I don't know, four or five months ago, and like he, he went down to the co-main or, or down to the undercard for a few fights and got, you know, it's sort of like baseball players in a way. They get in slumps a little bit and then they'll come right back. And Sal Diamato is the most experienced judge in the world. If I can use him on my fights, I'm bringing him out. I'm bringing Derek out. I'm bringing these people out. But I've got Mike Bell. I've got Ron. I've got all these guys here in California that are that are developing and have developed and are and, you know. Um, but you've just got to you know, Josh. To answer your question, if you've got a judge who's making bad decisions consistently, you got to you probably need to maybe look 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 at somebody else. But the, but the progress of what you you described it, I'm not sure if you if people at home caught it or people listening, is that you put them sometimes down to the undercard. You say, hey, let's get through some, let's get you through a couple of these fights, see where you're at, see where your score's at, and if it's good, then we'll just go ahead and start bumping you back up. It's like putting you down in the minors. Say you're in a slump, okay, we put you back down into the minors and we bring you back up to the pros, you know, after you get back on track. I mean, it makes sense. Yeah, and I'm not trying to suggest the undercard of a big Bellator, a big UFC is any, you know, the, all those spots are important, but you, you get what yeah. I'm saying. You understand. <clears throat> yes, I do. But yeah. when, if you have a judge that you hear make the comment of, well, you know, you, you need to understand, we only have 
five to 10, maybe 15 seconds to make that determination on what I just watched and who I'm going to say won that round. Doesn't that tell you that judge is not watching that the way he's supposed to? Well, I mean, John, Should, shouldn't, a, shouldn't a judge at any moment that that fight stops know which way he's going to be given that score? Absolutely. I mean, what if you have a partial round? You've got to know where the fight's at at that, at that That's my point. point in time. I mean, that doesn't happen very often, but if, if that does happen, I want my judge to know, but rather than flip a coin in their mind. I agree. Oh, okay. Josh knows John. who I'm talking about. <laughs> yeah, John, John over here. John over here taking jabs. But look, I'm gonna I'm gonna go back to the weight cut. Now you're talking about the 15, percent and you guys are gonna vote on this. Am I correct? Yes. And then when is that vote happening? March the sixth. March the sixth. Now, if this thing gets approved, what are the next steps in terms of implementing it? I've got to run the regulation. It'll take me a little while. Um, you, you'll see it. You'll see it earliest. The earliest probably uh, fourth quarter of 2023. Okay. And then moving from there, um, and the promotions that you've talked to, whether it's UFC, Bellator, whatever, PFL, Ryzen, whatever it is, um, they, they all understand what you're doing? Or have you had conversations with all these promotions about this? I've had conversations with UFC and with Bellator. Um, okay. I, I haven't. Ryzen's not licensed here, and yeah, PFL is, but I, I hadn't really talked to them. They don't run shows that year that often. Okay. And then once that implements and you're saying that you need to figure out all the regulations that, that this will happen with them, and then once it does implement, you're saying by fourth quarter, which is what, November, end of October, November, December? Yeah, that'd be the earliest. Probably, John, probably Josh, probably more likely the first quarter of 2024, 20, but it'll be the third or third or you know the fourth quarter of 23 or the first quarter of 24 now i don't want to look too far ahead and i, and I understand but like what what would be your ideally in your next step in terms of time frame are you giving this a certain amount of time because like you said you would like to get this down to say closer to 10 percent. but are we talking four six eight years down the line when, or to see how the progress goes from year to year well once i get it and once I get data, then I'm going to try to get other states to adopt it, other major states. New York's a pretty good prospect, and Nevada's a pretty good prospect. But probably like something like a New York, because Kim Sumbler likes to look at our weight-cutting regulations, and mm -hmm. she's been uh, pretty proactive over there. And she's got Todd Anderson running her MMA program, so that it's been pretty uh, – you know, I'd like to you know maybe look, look to them to see if they'd – you know. And so if you can get another big state to do it, um, then, then suddenly you can have conversations about moving it down. Um, but I don't want to get too far ahead. I just want yeah. to stop the 15%. I want to stop the bleeding because I believe a hundred percent that if we put a line in the sand, we won't have anybody cross it. I don't think we'll have anybody cross it. Maybe right at the beginning they cross it because people will not really believe we're going to cancel a fight, even though we're going to tell them. Once it happens once or twice, I don't think you'll have that ever happen again. And then suddenly that'll become the standard line in the sand. And keep in mind, uh, John and Josh, this will happen for boxing as well. So I think once that happens, the sanctioning organizations will probably be pretty um, uh, agreeable to adopt this. I mean, IBF has their weight cutting rules, much like you said, Josh, with the 10 pounds. Mauricio with the WBC has his 
his much like you said with the with the weight checks and all that. So I think all these different organizations will be pretty uh, agreeable to this, and uh, we'll just have to move it from there and see what happens. Have you guys thought about, and have you guys realized that sometimes the fighters, knowing that they're going to exceed that 15, is going to probably cut weight the day of? It's been a concern, but Josh, if you cut weight, I mean, if you put on 15%, more than, I mean, think about it, from 170 to 195 and a half, we're giving you 25 Mm -hmm. and a half pounds. Now, I'm not saying you're not going to get a note, you're going to get a note, you may get shifted in the next weight class if you do that, but your fight's not going to get canceled. But if you have to cut weight to make 195 and a half after weighing in 170, I'd say the doctors are probably going to be able to pick up on that, Josh. They're probably going to, they, they probably will. Got it. I'd say the biggest problem with it is going to be your performance is probably not going to be what it could have been. There you go. Yeah, and you got a chance of losing the fight based, just based upon you trying to cut weight the day of. But you, we do you have think, we do have people that do. Yeah. You should. Yeah, most I think most of us realize though also that if you are cutting weight, you're only going to be cutting about probably two to three pounds at the max at fifteen percent. I mean, if you're given a fifteen percent allowance, it, like you said, getting up to one ninety five and a half. If they're up to two hundred, they're cutting. You know, do the math, John, because I'm not very good at it. But <laughs> you know what I mean. They're cutting four, you know four pounds, three and a half, four pounds, and that's not as much as they just did the day before. But it will it will eventually affect their performance, even It'll if it's a their little performance bit of weight. In the end. Yeah, a little bit of dry mouth, a little bit of muscle fatigue, you know, yep. those type of things will affect your your performance. Uh, but you know, having that extra weight, that's gonna be the hard part, I think, in the in the long run for these fighters. They're gonna have to really get themselves on a nutrition program, spend the money on the on the between camps. And we had Yaroslav Amosov. He just when he fought but the first time he fought Logan Storley. He said, I got so fat out of shape, you know, in between camps. And that's the problem with a lot of these these uh, younger MMA fighters. Look at guys like Paddy Pimblett. I mean, he walks around 200, fights at 55. Yeah. That's a problem. That's an issue. Now, he doesn't maybe put the weight all back on because he does look pretty lean when he fights. But that's that's a concern, I think, for every uh, promoter should be a concern. Like, will they make the weight first when they get so big and out of shape between camps? And then once they do make the weight, how much will it affect their performance to where am I getting my money's worth as a promoter? Am I getting what I pay for, for a performance? I want that knockdown drag out available fighter, someone that has the energy to go into the third round or the fifth round. Am I getting that? And so I, that's where I feel like if you can have these conversations with the promoter and you say, Hey, I do, I do like the 15% Andy. And I think it's a great, it's a definitely a great idea. I think it's going to be the the segue into getting it lower, but the conversation down the line, I really believe is to have this, let's start off with 15 and as fighters get used to it, start talking about getting it lower. But then on top of it is implementing that extra one weight class or that extra two weight classes. So now they don't have to worry about being so <clears throat> losing so much weight because there's another weight class available and ready to them for them. If I could have fought at 65, I probably would have fought at 65. I hated getting to 55 and I didn't cut a ton of weight. 22 pounds, you know, 20 pounds at the max, at the max 20 pounds. Very rarely it was like 17, 18 pounds, but I, I never exceeded that weight class either. <clears throat> but like I said, that goes with educating the fighter in terms of not putting on more weight than what you're used to training at, because that does also affect your performance. That's where the education comes in. And then later on down the line, explaining to the promotions that if we had extra weight classes, these fighters would not be hurting themselves as much. 
I do I'll look at the game plan moving forward. That's all I wanted to know what your thoughts were on the game plan moving forward. Yeah, I mean, Josh, everything you said, I mean, everything you said is kind of correct. I mean, that that's 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 kind of that's what I envision moving forward is. I mean, these weight classes are already available to the promoters if they want yeah. to use them. But uh, moving forward, like ideally, what I would like to see is we get this thing a little bit lower, a little bit lower, a little bit lower, and promoters start uh, uh, correctly matching these people with people that they have that are close to the same weight. So we don't have fighters who on on Monday show up at 185, cut to 155, and then on Saturday when we weigh them again, they're one they're one pound away from each other and they're 183 pounds each or 183 and 184. And that's what happens. This is like a, a really dumb thing that we have happening here is you have people basically the same size in the cage most of the time, most of the time. The problem where it gets dangerous is yeah, one guy didn't get the memo and another guy's 25 pounds heavier than him. That, that That's where it gets dangerous. And I actually canceled a boxing match the other day with a situation like that. Um, but it, it does happen from time to time, and that's why it's uh, important to be vigilant. And, Josh, what you said is correct the other – I mean, a while ago, I'm having to do a lot of regulation looking at this. This takes a lot of effort to try to track everybody's weights and, not, you know uh, – <clears throat> Don't don't you know? It'd be good if we could just get people kind of in the right weight, but I do have to look at it because it's a problem. Andy, let I me. Ask I don't you. envy. I don't envy you at all for having to do all this legwork. I got to be honest. Us fighters, we're stubborn. We're always the most uh, argumentative when it comes to things that we think is best for our career and our health. When in reality, we don't really know. Boom. Andy, let me ask you this because back at UFC 199, that was the first time that you implemented the early weigh-in where we have an early weigh-in in the morning and then a ceremonial weigh-in later on but the fighters get more time to rehydrate that was always looked at as that was what was better for their health now yeah let's say it's eight years down the road seven eight years down the road and you've seen everything was that the right decision to make was it what do you think it's been effective I think it did. I think it did what we needed it to do as far as giving the fighters more time to rehydrate, John. I mean, in, from from a purely optics standpoint and a safety standpoint. So it's not just optics. I'm talking about safety and optics. You know, what is it we had, John? You know, we wait. We have these guys dehydrate all day. Wait till four or five, and we bring them out in front of four thousand people and weigh them in. They can barely walk. Do you know what I'm talking about? You remember that, don't you? Oh yeah. Okay. So this gets rid of that. Um, where at least when they're when they're out there doing their face offs, they're healthy. They feel good. They're able to. Um, and. You know, we're not having to uh, basically transport people from weigh-ins uh, as much as we used to. And I, this is totally anecdotal, John. You and Josh could comment on this, but it seems like the guys feel better. It seems like they fight and they're fighting better. It seems like they feel better uh, because they've had more time to rehydrate. It seems that way. Well, we just had recently the Islam Makashev versus Alex Zander-Volkanovsky fight, which is number one against number two pound for pound both incredible fighters, both champions. But if you look, you know, we we did a side-by-side -side of Islam Makhachev, and you got to figure that when he fought Charles Oliveira in Abu Dhabi, he had that full basic 36, 
or 38 hours of rehydration. When he fought Alexander Volkanovsky, that was not there, and he was cut down to less than 24 hours. And you could see the difference in his body just taking a look at him, the way he came in, the way his body looked. He looked smoother, and it's all because of that rehydration time that he was used to. In that fight against Volkanovsky, he did not get that same amount of time. Yeah, I mean, so um, what I would what I would prefer, John and, and Josh, is I would prefer the uh, uh, that to have the extra time to to rehydrate and all that, but also be matched more appropriately to the weight class, so they're not having to do these massive weight cuts, so that the rehydration is not so extreme. That that's ideally and. You know, we we I mean, you go to our database, John, on the on the national database. We've got flags on so many people. I mean, commissions call us from all around the world about these flags, and and, and so we're having some effect. We're having some impact. We just we just got to do more. I feel like we're an island out here, a big island. California's a big island, but we we focus on this particular area because I think it's I think I think it's a. I mean, and plus we got a lot of exposure. There's a lot of exposure. We get a lot of fights, so I've got to I've got to pay attention to it. It's a big, it's the biggest problem in mixed martial arts, and it's probably the second biggest problem in boxing. If you if you were to say, because you've already brought up New York, um, in terms of which states would probably follow suit, uh, obviously down the line, maybe after a year of uh, <clears throat> of data that was brought in, who would you say would be the next couple states that would be willing to potentially jump on board? Um. You know, I I don't know. I I bet my home state of Georgia do it. <laughs> uh, 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 yeah, and uh, uh, yeah, uh, I'd have I, Utah would do it. I bet. I bet Scott Bowler would do it. Um, he's been interested in this subject. Um, you know, but uh, I don't. Yeah, I don't. I don't. I don't know. I. I I'd have to I'd have to think on that, Josh. It's a good question, though. Because, like, if you look, like Bellator's been has been for years going to Chicago at least probably once a year. Then you know um, UFCs tend to go there, and then and then Florida's had a lot of action as of lately because of COVID. I mean, those are two states that you would like to see. That I'd like to see this probably implemented in. But what's the relationship so much in, in terms of you think them following suit here shortly after? Yeah, I don't. I, I kind of doubt. I kind of doubt. Uh, I, I don't want to speak for Florida, so I don't. I don't know. Um, mm. I know that California. I know that I'm focused on this particular subject, um, and I don't know about the other states. I, I do know that Kim Sumbler cares about this issue because she talked to me about it. You know, in New York. Got it. Okay. Well, Andy, I want to tell you thank you so much for your time. I know we've taken about an hour of your time, so I just want to just say <laughs> hey. Thank you very much for coming on. Thanks for explaining things to people. And thank you for being a guy that is always looking to for a way to make both boxing and MMA better. So you the man. Thank you. You I want to make sure that there's one last thing. Uh -oh. I, I, I can't. Not, I, I can't you, hear it. Can you hear anything? I can't hear anything. I'm not at all. letting you get <laughs> away with this, Andy. I'm not letting you get away with this. Hey, John, that was a headbutt, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> I remember that. Yeah. Oh, I bet. I bet. Yeah. Hey, John. Uh, just, I just want to say this really, really quickly uh, about the Muhammad Ali stamp. Uh, the Chairman Viegas is working on uh, um, uh, with with others at the Ali Center. 
Uh, he's trying to work with different politicians uh, to get uh, Muhammad Ali a postage stamp. So I just wanted to mention that quickly. Yeah, absolutely. That is uh, something that would be special, and uh, hopefully it comes about. There's uh, all kinds of red tape to go through for those things, but Muhammad Ali getting his own postage stamp is something that needs to happen because he was a huge figure, not only in, in the United States, but in the world. Yeah. Well, thank you for having me, both of you guys. Thank you. Well, Andy, I want to say thank you because – Honestly, you were you were always in contact with me talking about whether whether it was my fights, uh, my performances or ruling rules and any questions I ever had. You always reach back out to me when I reach out to you. You're one of the only you're actually the only commissioner I've ever actually had a really good relationship and (laughs) and talk, you know, and talked with in terms of in terms of like in terms of response and not just that uh, because I'm the commissioner and. This is what it's, this is what I'm telling you to do. Um, I appreciate that. And, um, you know, even when we had the headbutt situation, we had had, we had talked several times extensively over how to handle it or how we should go through it. But, um, I think as a fighter, those are things that are important to have a relationship with your commissioner, understand, uh, what the rules are, understand how to go about things. And I appreciate you so much for those type of things. Thank you. I want to thank Andy Foster for coming on our show. Great interview. Gave a lot of good, you know, insight into the way you have to look at regulation and what you're going to do. Josh coming up with actually some good questions and they're ones that needed to be answered. No, it's because it really is. People need to hear that stuff. But the the big part about, you know, weight cutting Josh and, you know, we, we've said it before, there's all kinds of ideas, but there's no easy answers. Nothing's easy. N- nothing can be easy when the promotions have a lot of the say in what goes on That's because right. Because if they don't like what the commissions are doing, they just won't take their event there. And then right. that in that process, then the then basically the, the states are not getting the funding they need or they're not making the money they need. They are a business like anything else. And it takes time to or it doesn't take time, but it takes money to to finance that type of business is to have commissioners, to have judges, to have refs, to have people that work with the fighters in the back. All of those things cost money. And if the commission, if the promotions don't come, then they can't have those people on staff. And that's where the problem lies. Sounds right. And you can't afford training for them and all kinds of things just Mm. snowball. So tough. But thank you very much to Executive Officer Andy Foster for coming on the show. We appreciate it. And I hope you guys all enjoy listening to what he had to say. For Josh Thompson and me, I just want to say thank you for tuning into the Weighing In podcast. And we will see you.